Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 88, and it's the period of 1821-1822. We're heading into a decade of disaster, drought, despondence, and disorder. As we heard last episode, the 1820 settlers were suffering the effect of crop losses and pestilence. These years would also be characterized by an expanding Zulu empire and Trek Boers leaving the Cape once the English emancipation laws took effect and a general mass movement of people across the subcontinent. There are many theories about all of this. I'm going to stick to the facts as we know them rather than speculate on any of the main reasons for what became known as the Difukani or Infukani. There's a propensity for historians to finger-point about this decade, so I'll explain each supposition as we go. But enough about esoterics. Let's get on with the episode. Something had arrived in the Cape as part of the 1820 settler fleet that had put the fear of God into Lord Charles Somerset, and he had immediately banned the object in question. This, of course, was a printing press. Nothing strikes fear in a bureaucrat more than the public's power to spread their own message. Asked to Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, they are more afraid of Twitter than an F-16 fighter jet. And if you ask them if they are, the answer will be Shada and Da, respectively. In other words, yes. Just as an aside, isn't it interesting that Da is part of the word yes in both Russian and Mandarin? Makes it easier to agree with each other when they vote on the Security Council, I suppose. Enough digression. Well, now, back in southern Africa, start of decade two of the 19th century, the settlers had managed to reduce Somerset's control over their freedom of speech. There were now public gatherings being held in Grahamstown, for example. However, the printing of an alternative to the incredibly boring Government Gazette, a publication which became known as the South African Commercial Advertiser, was still some years away, 1824. Somerset had seized the printing press aboard a ship called the Chapman in 1820, as the British governor feared that independent reporting on the situation in the Eastern Cape Frontier would not be to the Empire's advantage. However, the settlers managed to write letters of complaint about their desperate situation and mail these to England anyway, where newspapers published their stories, and this had a profound effect on what was going on down south. Thomas Pringle who was to be crucial in the coming freedom of speech revolution in South Africa, had left his frontier farm by now and had been roped into running Cape Town's public library. All this talk about freedom of speech had also set off another mini-revolution inside Trek Boer culture in the Cape urban areas, which dovetailed with the English belief that education was vital to implement anglicisation. The two peoples, however, did not see eye to eye on this concept. But it is true that after 1820, the Cape Dutch thirst for knowledge was amplified by a shortage of teachers. Goldburn, who was undersecretary for colonies in England, believed in using English to improve what he called the manners and morals of the people. The importation of English and Scottish ministers and schoolmasters increased, with the view both to change the language of the Cape from Dutch to English and to turn everyone into English men and women. By everyone, however, the Amakosa were excluded, of course. Just to improve the chances of this social engineering experiment, the British government subsidised education, making it free. So, South Africa had free education in 1822. Gasp. Somerset published a proclamation in July 1822 stating that English was now the official language of the Cape. 
This announcement provoked no positive reaction from the Cape Dutch, as you can well imagine. The official class, which was dependent on the government, were not too unhappy, however. They were quite willing to have their children learn English. The more prominent Dutch families around Cape Town and its surroundings learned English in double-quick time and knew that being the language of empire, their children were likely to gain quick promotion inside that empire. The Cape Dutch families of the Van der Bales and the Cloutis, for example, became completely anglicized at this time. However, the language of the church remained Dutch. The Dutch colonials were not particularly concerned about the language per se. They were really more interested in how the English were changing their culture through the anti-slavery messages, and also because the main language in their church was Dutch. The Trekboers living in distant farmlands had very little interest in learning English, although most realized it was actually in their favor. They had virtually no direct contact with these new English technocrats, so there wasn't much need on a day-to-day basis to learn to speak the new colonizers' language. As long as these Engelser didn't try to make them read their Bible in English, they carried on as before. This was all going on as the new English settlers suffered setback after setback. The first step in the colonization had actually been earlier in 1817 when Benjamin Moody had brought 200 unmarried Scottish artisans to Swellendam who integrated quite well, but the second tranche of settlers, as you've heard, had gone less well. Of the 1,004 men who'd settled in the Zurfeld, aka Albany region in 1820, only 438 remained on their farms by the start of 1823 and the British attempt at increasing the concentration of their citizens on the frontier had failed. The year 1824 was going to bring major change, as you'll hear in the coming podcasts. But first, we must head back up the East Coast, because Sharka had been very busy indeed over the past two years. We need to catch up quickly, because his empire was going to be short and not very sweet. Myths about this period abound. By 1821, Shaka had subjugated the major groups, the Kwabe, the Mkise, and had just sent them Dwandwe packing. Zwide had fled to the area of modern-day Mpumalanga at the headwaters of the Komati River. Back in Zululand, or more specifically, the area around the Umtlatuzi to the Black Umfolozi and down to the Tukela, Shaka was now the major force in the region. It's time to focus more specifically on what was going on socially behind this new power. Shaka had dutifully followed the rituals of a new king, and what an amazing process it was. We need to dig deep into this process to understand its complexity and appreciate the fact that it's carried on to this day. What really marked out the Zulu king's ceremony from others across southern Africa is its integration with the ritual doctoring of the army, and under Shaka it became what some have referred to as a fearsome war feast. There are two stages to the ceremony, known as the Little and Great Umkosi. The Little Umkosi was held about four weeks before the much larger ceremony, usually around late November or early December, when the green maize is ready to eat. This marks the beginning of the new year, and the Little Umkosi was quite a private affair. The king was given powerful medicine called black meat. Any commoner who partake of this would apparently die, and the king would suck these dark forces from his fingers as the sun rose, then symbolically squirt these or spit these out towards the dawn light. This would draw evil influences from his people and also cause his enemies some damage and confusion. A few of his cattle would be selected for their handsomeness and slaughtered sacrifice to honor the shades of the royal house. Then the royal herd would be driven to the graves of the king's ancestors in the Amokosini Valley, where the king praised his forebears, 
while his people would chant the Amkhubo, the anthems of power. The king manages the spirit world in a manner of speaking. Amazulu traditional spirit lives on today. This sort of power cannot be underestimated, and it, of course, has a political edge, as always. Once the little umkozi was done, the people could eat their new maize and rejoice about a new year. I think it's incredible that the Julian calendar, principle of the new year, conforms almost exactly in terms of the timing with the Amazulu new year. One of the reasons why migrant labor systems worked so well, particularly in Zululand, as the gold mines of Johannesburg developed by the late 19th century, was that the people of the region lived in the same rhythm of time as the financiers of the Witwatersrand. Back in 1821, as Shaka concluded his little umkosi, the Amabuto regiments began to mobilize and head to the king's main Ikanda homestead. They were preparing for the main hunt of the year when the most powerful and most venomous animals would be sought out their power would be captured and held by their killing. Their umiti would strengthen the army and the king during upcoming ceremonies. After the hunt, the king would isolate himself to fortify against any evil influences. Then it was time for the great umkozi, the main event. The people would gather in their thousands as Shaka emerged from his hut in the Izigotlo to stand before these Amabuto and the women. Everyone had mentally prepared themselves for this moment, and as Shaka emerged, he appeared as a terribly fearful character, dressed in the skins of the most eerie of creatures, such as baboons, festooned with greenery, so that he appeared to resemble a tree. His right cheek was painted white, his left cheek painted black, a resonance of yin-yang, if you like, his forehead painted red. He was smeared in black umit, and in his hand he carried a sacred royal spear, used in blood sacrifices that appealed to his ancestors. It was an old-fashioned throwing spear. The shaft turned black with smoke and age, and the blade rusted, its patina a stamp of ancient relevance. It was quite a scene, this appearance, and adding to the moment was the sound of national songs. The king would again spray Umiti at the rising sun, as he did during the little Umkosi, then we would throw a gourd of bitter herbs, the Uselva, onto the ground where it shattered, exorcising disease and pestilence from the nation. In an interesting aside, this would be followed by the purification of the Amabuto and strengthened in a similar manner to when they'd be prepared for war. The civil ceremony had been militarized. A day after these ceremonies, there would be jubilant feasting which would reinforce the people's support for the king and vice versa, all eating of the royal cattle sacrificed for this big party. Then the Amabuto would be drawn up, each regiment from across the regions. They'd compete in full regalia. There would be military maneuvers and dancing contests, and sometimes Shaka would join in. The Amabuto would ritually vomit medicines into a hole dug during the Umkosi. Then a small amount of this would be added to the Inkata Yezvi Yakwazulu, a venerated object, a circular grass coil, and the most important ritualized object in Zulu tradition. It holds the power of the king, legitimizes his authority and possesses the mystical power of rejuvenation. It protects the king and the nation. You can understand how the concept of mysterious hidden power and the presence of real physical power correlates, and how symbolism, the use of color, ritual, and deeply felt joint consciousness binds people together. All peoples of planet Earth have some kind of communal ritual that binds them together, based on whatever religion they practice. The control of the dark forces in nature and amongst humans is paramount, and 
expressed through the presence of a king here, were leader of some kind. The Encarta grass coil is about a meter in diameter and about as thick as the calf muscle of a man. It's wrapped in a python skin, honoring the snake's physical power and its supernatural mystery. This simple coil of grass, however, is a complex object. It ensures rainfall and a successful harvest. The components of this coil contain the source of the people's essence. The grass coil itself is even more symbolic, a deep reality. The grass harvested from ancient Zulu walking trails and paths along which the people and the cattle have brushed, and from the doorways of huts through which people rubbed and stooped. Furthermore, Shaka would always harvest some of this grass from the regions of the kings he killed, that Kwabe et al., and little bits of their bodies that he'd cut off would be inserted into the Inkata. And it went further. Bits of soil and ground from where the wise councillors sat to discuss affairs of the state would be stuffed into the Inkata, along with the teeth of the most feared wild animals, including lion and buffalo. This coil of grass was a lot more than just a coil of grass. It was and is the object that encapsulates the entire nation's spirit, and the king would transfer its power linked to the ancestors, to his army, as he sat in the middle of this coil, inspiring his soldiers and shielding them from the malevolent forces of the enemy's ancestors. And like with the story of the Ark of the Covenant, this coil of power would be kept out of sight and under guard. It was stored inside Shaka's great Ikanda hut, entrusted only to one of the prominent widows of a former king. Isn't it incredible to think that this most powerful of objects for the Amazulu was kept safe by a woman? There's an anthropological connection between us all as humans. There can be no denying our enjoying journey on this planet distinct from other creatures. And of course, it was precisely because of the grass coil in Carter's supreme power that the British would destroy it more than 50 years after Shaka's death at the end of the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879. Its destruction a symbolic end then to the Zulu kingdom as founded by King Shaka and severing the mystical link between the first four Zulu kings and the kings who came after 1879. But that's another story we'll get to in much later episodes. As I've explained through the series, there is a limit and was a limit to Shaka's power. The mythology of how he destroyed all before him we know is an extreme exaggeration. He didn't have raw power and ritual consecration in his kingly toolbox alone. He had something far more important, the wide understanding of his people that he was in fact the king. It was deeply and widely accepted that he held this position and he was also bound by its rules. He was constrained and one of the reasons why he ended up being assassinated was that he began to break the bond he had with his own people. If a king flouts these bonds, there would be resistance, a rebellion, people break away. This was the same throughout most African kingdoms and is pretty much the story of how people vote today. If you have freedom of movement, of course, you can move away from a dictator at some point. Because Shaka had many competitors, not least Zwide, he had to play the game. Pre-colonial Zulu kings had an inner core of about half a dozen leading advisors, a cabinet of sorts called the Mkantlu. This group would be led by a man selected as the chief counsellor, who would also double up as commander-in-chief of the Amabuto. As with everything else, the Mkantlu would gather in the royal Isabaya in front of the Isugotlu. They would meet to discuss matters of grave importance and having reached consensus would then consult the king. Shaka would ponder the advice 
then summon a great council, the Abandla, where the senior councillors of all the various smaller chieftains would be called together. He would sit in front of a wide semicircle of these men, and he'd explain his thinking about whatever was planned. When it came to the big decisions like going to war, representatives of all the married men of the Amabuto would be called upon, so that a popular consensus could be reached. Once all of this was completed, his chief counsellor, Aka'a commander-in-chief, would call a general assembly of the people or make the announcement of a decision at a national ceremony like the Unkozi. When there was an emergency, however, such as a sudden attack by a nearby chief, or drought, or any other emergency, this process would be truncated and decisions would be made on the fly by the king. Shaka often broke the rules. Eventually, he would pay for it going from wielding his power with some deftness to his last days where he slumped into serious abuses and really did kill hundreds and possibly thousands of his followers. The ultimate decision over life and death did lie with the king alone. Formerly, the chiefs of the smaller kingdoms had been able to make these kind of decisions, but after Shaka came to power, he stripped them of the right. Kings acted arbitrarily, so he used the term justice rather loosely. Some revisionist historians suggest that there was an innate wisdom of Solomon internalized in all of these traditional African systems, but that, of course, is not the case in reality. Shaka would often overrule his advisers and have men fined of their cattle or sent into the wilderness to disappear or just have them executed. This wasn't justice, it was often murder. And the manner in which Shaka had these people killed is not for the squeamish. He would merely point his spear at an offending man They would then be stunned with a blow to the head. Then they were impaled and thrown into a bush nearby, where they'd die a slow and agonizing death. Women were not executed the same way. A rope was tied around a woman's neck with a slipknot. Then the rope would be hit with a heavy stick, and the noose would tighten slowly, throttling the victim to death. Perhaps one of the most pernicious myths about Shaka was that he could not have children or was somehow sexually deviant. The reality was, traditionally, the kings were very wary of having children around because these children would grow up and were a threat to their power. From oral tradition, there are two main narratives about Shaka. For those clans and chieftains who were his victims, he was a blood-soaked tyrant who murdered thousands. For his kith and kin, he was a lovely man, just misunderstood. European traders and hunters who met Shaka had a mixed story to tell, but all agree on one thing. Shaka was a warrior king. Charles McLean, for example, spent time living with Shaka as a youngster and said he was a man of natural ability, but also cruel and capricious. Those who were victims tell stories of bloodthirsty actions. Other Zulus in surrounding clans shrugged off his executions as part and parcel of what Zulu kings do, haven't you heard? One said, seeing vultures flying above, Shaka shouted, Whoa, the birds of the king are hungry, said one oral source. People were then killed and put out on a hill to be eaten by vultures, and whoa, the vultures were all out on the hill. There are other things that most oral sources, and even the first written sources, agree on. Shaka was a man of the great outdoors. He very seldom just sat around in his umuzi. By the end of his reign, he had set up his main homestead at Kwadokuza, otherwise known as Stanga, north of Durban and overlooking the Tugela River. He built his great place 10 kilometers from the sea up on the hills, and he would sit for hours watching the waves roll in from the great Indian Ocean. Then at sunset, he would set off home at a jog 
with his councillors mostly fat and stately panting along behind him as he ran. Trader Nathaniel Isaacs, who we're going to meet shortly, called Sharka the best pedestrian in the country. And what of these theories about Sharka and sex? Well, for the true story, we'll have to wait for next episode. I'll explain as much as we know about his many wives and his relationships with women. But, in a nutshell, as an oral source reminds us in James Stewart's amazing archive, a person like Chaka is a wild beast, a creature that does not live with its own young, its male offspring. I'll explain what he meant in episode 89. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there at deslatham. Until next, Salayati. Thank you.